From Carry the Load, these are Lessons from the Front. Stories of service and sacrifice from our military, veterans, first responders, and their families. So, April 22nd, 2008. Where were you that day? Uh, I was in uh, Ramadi, Iraq, east side of the city. Um, there's a there's a main thoroughfare, uh, probably three or four lanes in each direction uh, that runs through the middle of the city. Um, so I was at one of our platoon's outposts. We were split into two outposts, um, just on the south side of that thoroughfare, um, eastern part of Ramadi. Folks that have been there would, would kind of recognize it as the neighborhood or the district east of the Malab district. Um, and uh, kind of a, a thinly built area along the south side of that highway. Um, and on the north side of the highway, you've got, I think there, were, there was a uh, women's college, there was an agricultural college. Um, you had the Sophia district, the Sajaria district, and the Jueba district kind of the neighborhoods there along the north side of the, the highway there. Um, what was the climate there at that point? Climate was, so I would say, it was a transitional climate. So you're about six to 12 months removed from uh, the fiercest part of the awakening fighting in Anbar province and probably one Marine Corps deployment cycle after that, right? So the unit that we were replacing, we were about uh, about a month into the deployment at that point. Um, the unit we were replacing had been what I would say the, the transition unit that spent seven months between the heaviest fighting into this period of um, teach, coach, mentor, and and develop the Iraqi stakeholders, the neighborhood councils, the police, um, the security forces, the infrastructure managers. Um, so it was a climate where there was not a lot of active um, force on force um, taking place within sort of that post-insurgency period. Um, sporadic IEDs, landmines, things like that. Um, so still not considered a, a safe and um, easy environment. Not, yeah, not a permissive environment, <laughs> um, but definitely a period where I think the Iraqi community is trying to pivot into kids in school, growing their economy, but you know, still occasional suicide bomber attempts or successful attacks. Um, I think there were a couple car bombs, you know, for, that the battalion had during that period. Um, so tension in the air, um, but people generally kind of leaning forward towards um, moving, you know, moving Ramadi forward into um, growing, building, um, you know, returning, returning to some sense of normalcy, I think. In an odd period, right, for, yeah. for a bunch of young Marines coming in who are supposed to help mentor and develop Iraqis to do things that we don't have any core competencies in, um, while at the same time trying to help them weed out 
kind of the, rem the remnants of the insurgency. So on that day, um, what were you doing at that, at that point in the morning? Were you, were you getting ready for any patrols? Were you working on other orders that, uh, that had come down from higher? What was your, we were getting the, uh, my platoon sergeant and I were getting going through, um, sort of establishing the morning routine, um, looking at who was going out on patrols with the unit we were replacing, um, the battle rhythm of the unit we were replacing and, and learning how we were going to man the responsibilities um, given the force reduction. So we had uh, a 50-man platoon, um, 47 Marines, three Navy corpsmen. So it's a big platoon. Is it a rifle platoon? So we had a rifle platoon, but when uh, when our battalion commander took our platoon and moved us from the company we were in to the company that was taking the main effort, he said, hey, we're going to have a pre-deployment. We're going to have a brief. Uh, your mission set will probably require you to have more people. You'll have to work with your company commander and first sergeant to bring more Marines with you. You know, you can't take... Uh, you can't take all the NCOs or all of the, um, uh, you can't raid the company of, of every, you know, amazing Marine that they've got, but you're going to need more people. And so we ended up with, uh, yeah, platoon plus, we had a radio operator, uh, so a comms Marine. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, and so we were replacing a, a company from two eight, uh, and I forget exactly how many Marines and sailors they had, but let's say 180, 200. And so my platoon sergeant and I, each morning we're watching the battle rhythm, we're learning what the company's routine is, and we're thinking about what responsibilities will we assume? Uh, what should we discard? Um, what can we discard? What can't we get rid of? Um, and then where are the opportunities to take things that the Marines are doing and either assign that immediately to the Iraqis, whether it's police, neighborhood councils, whatever, or um, how do we help the Iraqis develop their own competencies to take whatever that responsibility looks like. Um, because going from whatever, 200 people to 50, we can't do everything that that unit just did. We've turned it over to the Iraqis. Y'all need to step up and, and take over now. Yes. At that point, your mission was, uh, you were no longer the main effort of the fight. As Marines, you were supporting the Iraqis so that they could continue. Correct. Okay. Yep. <clears throat> and so that day was a little bit of a different day for you. It wasn't just establishing, they started out establishing battle rhythm, but uh, what happened? So uh, as I mentioned, our platoon is split into two outposts. Um, about two thirds of us at the larger one where I was, and then about a third of the Marines and sailors are at a smaller outpost. Uh, it was called JSS Nasser, small police station in the Sophia district, right at one of the entry control points um, that they had built to partition Ramadi, right? So a lot of concrete barriers and physical walls were put up uh, to partition um, the city and control entry you know, a little bit of bikes and walkthrough, but mainly traffic, right? Um, and look at who's coming in and out. 
So uh, that morning, uh, right after the sort of the morning handover at that station, right? So Marines are changing guard duties, police are changing guard duties. The police would usually do sort of our equivalent of a stand-up formation where they'd, whatever 20 police officers were there, they'd get in ranks and do roll call and do announcements or whatever. Uh, so right after that, <clears throat> um, one of my Marines is on the control point, the gate to the police station. One of the Marines they're replacing and a, uh, what I would just describe as a water truck, right? So a 10 wheel water truck, uh, fuel truck, starts navigating the entryway. Um, you know, it's, it's less than 100 yard entryway, uh, quite a bit less than that. Uh, but the vehicle's navigating sort of the serpentine into the entry point um, and not stopping, um, picking up speed as it kind of exits the last barrier and the two Marines open fire, uh, truck explodes, basically on top of them, on top of the gate, um, but without making entry into the rest of the compound. And so one of these Marines was, was from your platoon? That's right, yep, Jordan Herder. Jordan Herder. Tell me about Jordan. Uh, Jordan, uh, one of the younger Marines in the platoon, uh, you know, which the platoon's made up of mostly men age 18, 21. Uh, you know, you're, you're old if you're 23 or 24 in a Marine rifle platoon. Uh, Jordan's 19. He was from uh, Long Island. Um, you know, grew up uh, learning how to um, fly planes, went took flying lessons and sold a plane without telling his parents. Um, tried to create uh, some little businesses along the way. He had one where he would deliver bagels via, uh, I think sort of like a kayak or canoe out to uh, these boats that are docked in the harbor there. Um, uh, quiet, studious. Um, one of the things I told his parents when I met them the first time was he was always paying attention to whatever we were teaching going through the, uh, uh, the pre-deployment training and that's unique, even amongst Marines, because not everybody has that level of intensive focus. So he was, while he was not one of the vocal Marines in the platoon, he was somebody that was always paying attention. And if you trained him to do something uh, a certain way, he would do it that way. Um, that still to me, you know, 15 years later sticks out is just how I can picture the stare, the attentiveness, the focus, and you're teaching a class or someone is giving instruction on something. Some of the Marines may be bantering or there may be distractions amongst the group, not with him. He's laser focused on what's happening. Um, still to me, this, this many years later, that is what really sticks out. I can picture the intensive focus that he had. Was that your first was that your introduction to combat that was that was so the very first thing that you experienced in combat was a truck born explosive device that's right were you close enough to to hear it go off yeah so we are the two outposts were a couple kilometers away 
we could hear it go off. You know, I was inside of a building. Um, uh, well, I was inside of the other outpost, and you could hear it. And people that were on the west side of the city said they could hear it. Uh, and, of course, then as soon as you went outside, you could see the dust and the smoke and everything that was up in the air. Um, and how far were between the two posts? A couple kilometers. I'm trying to visualize my map all these years later. Uh, you know, the equivalent so of a five-minute ride. A little over a mile. Yeah, probably more than a mile. Okay. So a little, little over a mile. And, and we'll get back to the, to the events of, of, the, um, of the day, but I, I, I want to I know what's going through your mind. When that thing goes off, you can hear it. Probably to some degree you could feel it. It was a 2,000-pound bomb. We knew that something had happened at least in close proximity to JSS Nasser because the communications were all down. So think back 15 years. We're still working with PRIC 119 radios. We had that. We had a, I forget what the chat platform that we had was. All of that was down. Um, the camera feeds were down. So uh, we're still in that week where the other units in command and control and we're the, we're the right seat, right? Um, they're in the left seat. They're driving. We're in the right seat observing. And so they're kind of in command of the situation. So as I recall, I think the company commander sent a QRF out there because we couldn't get any communications up. And a QRF is a quick reaction force. Quick reaction force. force, right? So he sends a squad of Marines out in Humvees probably okay. out to go see what had happened. Uh, they've obviously got radios in the trucks. So they get there and they're relaying events back is, is my recollection of that period. Um, my platoon sergeant and I, we didn't have, you know, the handoff hadn't been completed. So we didn't have any assets of our own. Um, so you're, you're deferring to... Um, the commander that's still in control. So we're still at our outpost. We, the, the quick reaction force communicates back that they're bringing casualty or casualties back to our outpost. We went with one of the Marines, one or two of the Marines from the unit we were replacing um, out basically in our backyard and uh, set up to coordinate the QRF coming back with whoever they were bringing and talk to the aircraft and the battalion to make sure that people got loaded up. We knew who was going where. Um, so for that next, man, I'm hazy, Todd. I'll say the next probably 30, 30 minutes to an hour. Um, we were just monitoring what was happening. And then that QRF brings uh, actually brought Jonathan Yale uh, from 2-8 back. Um, so we helped with kind of the immediate triage Helicopter comes in, we get them on there, um, and uh, and did you know at that point that, that Jonathan and Jordan were, were co-located? So we at that point we knew because we had um, kind of a crude way to call it, but the Marine Corps used to call it a zap number, right? It would be a combination of of letters and numbers that represent each Marine in a unit, and so we knew at that point. Uh, we knew Jordan was a casualty. We didn't have his status. The communications were still down at the other outpost. Uh, so still unclear um, exactly what had happened. He did not come back um, on that QRF with Jonathan Yale. Um, so 
once, uh, 45 minutes an hour later, when I got into uh, one of the trucks and got over to the other outpost, we had found, we found then that um, Staff Sergeant Grooms had uh, put Jordan on a truck um, and sent him back to Camp Ramadi, uh, the main, I, I main, am, out, main base there. I am shocked that, that Jonathan Yale survived the initial blast um, and that either of them could be recovered at all. Um, as I understand it, that truck loaded with the equivalent of 2,000 pounds worth of, uh, uh, of explosives came to rest after they gunned down the driver. That thing went off right in front of them, correct? Yeah, it's, it's unfathomable. I mean, Yale was um, in very rough shape, but still alive. It makes no sense. I mean, that truck was right on top of them. It blew the side of the, there's a mosque directly on the other side of the driveway, right? That this truck's come down. There's a mosque on the other side of it. It blew the wall out of the mosque. And based on, on what I understood it, yeah, the wall collapsed and then the whole thing collapsed. Um, and for, for people that don't understand a 2000 pound bomb, if it's delivered from the air, what we're talking about is about 30 something meters down. That's the crater that it makes. And then more than 50 diameter. And again, that's where I'm just, I am baffled that either of them was able to be recovered. And that's what I'm hearing you say. Um, when you got to the site, was it just, I mean, what was your reaction? You know, I, I, I don't remember my exact reaction or even if I had a reaction. I mean, when I got there, obviously I took in the scene and then I remember I started to walk the different posts at Nasser, trying to figure out, you know, where all of my Marines were, what shape were they in, um, who were, who was on each post and. Cause comm was still down at this point, right? Yeah. I can't, I can't remember if the comm was for the outpost was up or down. Obviously we had our own radios at that point on our bodies and, and in the trucks, but, um, I, you know, I don't remember my exact reaction. I just, the thing that's most memorable was going post to post, checking in with each of my Marines. Um, you know, a couple of guys had, you, you can imagine the, um, uh, the impact of that detonation going off. So a couple of guys clearly needed to go, uh, needed to go get treatment, be seen for so concussions, physically, right? We're talking about the physical impact. That blast going off, it's not like you're prepared for it and you're in the immediate uh, kill radius of, of a bomb that big. So concussions, what now we think about TBI, right? A couple of guys that were on posts who experienced that, uh, the shock from that detonation going off, seeing what state everybody was in emotionally, um, as would be expected, 
range of, of outcomes there. A couple, couple Marines needed to go back to get treatment, um, to be looked at by a medical. Um, from, our, from our platoon, I think only one, I think Corporal Teague was the only one that had physical wounds due to the bomb going off. And he was actually in one of the buildings when the bomb went off and got hit with shrapnel and glass and everything else. And he was, he was the one from our platoon that was trying to get the radios functioning again um, up on the roof of the, the After the blast? Right. So he'd, he'd experienced the, uh, uh, some physical damage. Right, yeah, he's wounded, he's a little bit bloody disoriented from the the bomb going off and uh, trying to get the radios up. What a testament. What a testament to to, to the training that, that these kids have. Um, he doesn't even know what hit him. He's still trying to figure it out. Oh, yet, yeah. But yet the most important thing that, that he can focus on is I got to get the comms up because somebody else's life is going gonna, is gonna to rely on this. Yes. Yep. What about psychologically? How did, how did that blast psychologically impact these kids at, at the other posts? Yeah, great question. Definitely a range of, of impacts. You know, without going into names or, or specifics of the Marines and sailors, it was a wide range of, you know, I think uh, we had one or two that did not want to come back from Camp Ramadi, you know, rejoin the unit. Um, overwhelmed, maybe felt, I think, you know, in one or two cases felt some type of personal responsibility. Hey, we weren't able to save these guys or... Um, personal responsibility, I don't, I don't understand that. Well, you know, you gotta remember, everybody's gone through nine to 12 month workup We've done all sorts of combat life-saving, uh, trauma treatment. Um, and I think for one or two of the members of the platoon, and, and I mean, look, I mean, like you said, it's a miracle that, um, you know, in the case of Yale, that he was still alive, you know, 15, 20 minutes after this had happened. Um, the thought that anybody would be able to, you know, with, with the rudimentary, it wasn't rudimentary, it was better training than that, but the, the relatively basic combat life-saving skills we had that you would think that you're gonna change that outcome. Um, but I think that's, you know, it's, it's um, in part due to the confidence that's built into Marines and sailors going through that training, that you think you can, you can fix anything, right? Um, you're not gonna give up on it. So I think, I think that loss, um, the loss of our two brother Marines impacted some of the guys in that way that you know, no reasonable person, no one should think that, that has, that's your fault or you could have done anything differently. Um, but I think some still felt that way. Uh, Was it others, maybe more survivor's guilt? There's, there's probably an element of that um, for sure. I think, and I think when you talk to uh, the Marines that it's still a pretty tight-knit group, in particular that squad um, stays in touch a lot. They, 
visit one another. You know, the guys crisscross the country to, to get together periodically. Um, there's definitely that thought. You know, quite a few. Uh, ben, my business partner, uh, Ernie, um, who I'm still real close with, uh, Corporal Teague. You know, all a, a number of these Marines went on to have children. A couple of them had children. Uh, you know, before the deployment. Um, so I think I think that's definitely part of the consideration for sure. Um, you know, a couple, maybe a few people impacted with uh, some anger or some resentment. I would categorize it as mild, you know, not, not in the way you sometimes, uh, if you read some of the Vietnam novels and things, like an intensive hatred um, for the enemy. I, I didn't see any of that in our guys. Um, and then I think for some, um, you know, motivation to continue to grow and develop the bond with the Iraqis, right? And really, it, in a way, it brought them together with those police officers they were working with there. Um, yeah, we, we didn't very even... tight knit. You know, they're with them every day, all day. Yeah, we didn't even talk about the the Iraqi police officers yet because um, you know, we did talk about transitioning to to them being able to take things over. But as 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 you guys kept in touch with them and kept working with them, how did that change the relationship from the immediate month when you got there to after that? Man, I wish we had. I wish we had uh, my interpreter, Big Dave here. He he lives in Fort Worth now, actually. Um, oh, really? Yeah. He. I don't want to speak for him, but I think Big Dave would tell you that it drew the police and the Marines together. Um, they saw a very stark example of sacrifice, leadership. Um, General Kelly highlights, you know, when he's given this speech. He highlights that when he spoke to the police, they said no sane person would stand there with that coming, right? We ran, the Marines stayed. So it, it brought, I think it brought the bond closer together. I think Big Dave would also tell you it, it brought a level of, I think it brought a level of respect um, between the, the people in the immediate community and the Marines in that, you know, the, Mar it, the Marines weren't seeking this out, right? It wasn't an active operation. Uh, here we are, we're helping protect uh, their brothers, their sons, their fathers that are working on the police force. We're there with them, uh, helping to protect and develop them. And I think it's strengthened, and I think this is what Big Dave would tell you, I think it's strengthened the bond with the community um, because that was a very vivid example of something that could have turned the balance maybe of the insurgency in Ramadi. It'd be a pretty big tipping point, I think, at that point in the game to bring a truck bomb in and you know potentially kill or wound 33 Americans, 20, 25 Iraqi police officers. In one, in one attack, yeah. you know, with one suicide bomber, that's got the potential, I think, to change, change people's minds about who's in control. Sure. 
and that didn't happen. And I think, I believe it brought the community more tightly together with the Marines at the same time that we're trying to put those community leaders out in front. Yeah, they were, they were the only two fatalities from, That's right. from that. Yep. That set your tone for the deployment. Or are you fortunate enough to say that that was the, the worst of it and the highlight? Oh, that was definitely the worst um, point of the deployment. There's no question about that. It's, it's a really interesting question. It's one that, particularly among Staff Sergeant Vecchia, Staff Sergeant Grooms, Sergeant Gladue, Sergeant Distal, um, who I keep in touch with all the time, and, and we were an extremely tight-knit group. Um, you know, probably a, a closer-knit group than what they tell you to be in Quantico. And what we assembled as, as that small unit team, as the enemy's most dangerous course of action, was a suicide vehicle um, born IED trying to penetrate the compound, but followed with shooters coming in, you know, behind the breach, right? And so it, when that happened, it felt, I don't know how to describe it other than sort of bizarre that, well, this is what we planned for as the most dangerous thing that could happen that the enemy could attempt to do. And it happens on whatever week two of the deployment. And then after that, everything else is relatively minor or passive action by the insurgency, right? Roadside IED attempts, none of which were successful. Um, you know, I can't even think, nothing else. It was truly of any significance that we didn't head off before it became anything. So you have that and you think, okay, is this, what's, is this what we're looking at for the next seven months? Um, that, that, that was exactly where I was going. I mean, right. I, you know, the, especially those young Marines out there on the post, if they're thinking, I've got another six months of this. Yep. And everybody's now, every Marine that's on a post, right, is on, I mean, they're, they're extremely sensitive to Itchy trigger fingers. this, right? Yeah, the, the Marines did a, a really remarkable job in restraint, being observant. You know, in this in this area of Ramadi, it's um, it's urban in that it's densely packed in terms of buildings and narrow streets. Um, you know, and and not everything's trafficable by trucks. We would do a lot of foot patrols, or we do a lot of patrols where the trucks would be on one of the paved roads, and the Marines are you know, walking through alleyways and things like that. But, you know, never any uh, incidents with um, the people in the neighborhoods or uh, any, anything like that. I mean, um, it, it, it's remarkable. You know, 19, 20-year-olds, they've just witnessed that type of an uh, event, and um, they've got the judgment, self-control, restraint to take in everything that's going on around them. And... I want to, I want to ask you something that is probably going to be very hard. Okay. So there's probably a lot of people who are listening to this who have lost a child at some point. When you lose a child, though, you are the one who is responsible to that child. As a Marine officer, 
explain to people what it's like to lose a Marine when we are responsible to their parents. Whether or not we had anything to do with it directly, even though we know what we're going into, they know what they're going into. Explain to people what, what that's like. So, I mean, great, great question. Um, tough question. I think, I think the way that I would explain this is you, you have spent 12 months every day of the, every day of the week, every day of the month, um, working to prepare the team for a wide range of demanding circumstances. And um, you, I think we, as leaders, we want to be challenged and we want to prove that the training we've done, it doesn't matter if it's military, business, um, the training that we've done has prepared the team for a rigorous set of challenges. Um, and so when you see your Marines engaged in an action like this where their training as Marines from boot camp through their in infantry training through their unit deployment training comes through and demonstrates the you know the ethos of what it means to be a Marine it's you're extremely proud of them um, at the same time, there's not an, it's, it's not an easy conversation to go have um, with parents. And I think the, in this case, while it was a very hard conversation, you're able to, I was able in this case to convey to uh, Jordan's mother, to Jordan's father, the circumstances of the event and what he and Jonathan were able to do in terms of protecting the other Marines and sailors and the other Iraqis. You know, and maybe in a sense, um, well, it doesn't make that conversation with the parents easy. Maybe it's easier than some, right? Um, a lot of families lost loved ones from something passive. You know, they ran over a, an IED in the road um, never had a chance, um, you know, uh, things, things like that. In this case, um, you're, you're trying to convey to the parents the significance of what their sons did and how that impacted the rest of the platoon. Um, but they're, they're, I mean, they're not great words of comfort that you can offer a parent. I mean, they really aren't. Do you think his parents understood? I, I mean, I can't speak for them on that, of what they understood at the time, but I think having been blessed to build a relationship with both the parents over the last 15 years, 
Um, I think they do now. They certainly do now. You referenced earlier a, um, a speech by General Kelly. Yes. And ironically, it was a speech given um, just a few days after he lost his own son in Afghanistan. Um, and ironically, we're, we're sitting here with his son's storyboard between us. Would you do me a favor and I can read an excerpt from his speech? <clears throat> um, before I do this, Todd, you know, I, I just I want to offer a comment on on General Kelly. So at the time he's leading MNF West, right? He's the general that's responsible for the western portion of Iraq. Um, you know, thousands of Marines, sailors, soldiers, support units, civilian agencies. He came out to Nasser after this to speak with people. And, you know, there was, there was some lack of clarity over what had happened, what had taken place. Remember I told you that all of the communications, all of that was down, and I think it took several weeks for, I wanna say maybe like an FBI recovery unit to get the footage and things like that off of the, the computer terminals to see what had happened, to where we were actually, the footage that's out on the internet now is, um, was able to be recovered. But General Kelly came out and he interviewed Americans and Iraqis to, to figure out what happened, and he, took personal responsibility for taking the award submissions that we had put in and pushing them up. Because at the time that this had happened, there wasn't a physical witness that had seen everything that had happened. There was no camera footage. There wasn't any camera footage that was available. And, you know, based on the, uh, the interviews that he did, he then took those award submissions and he pushed them up and, and pushed for those to go through. And so, to this day, I don't know that, uh, that Jonathan Jordan, I, I don't know that they would have received the Navy Cross posthumously were it not for him taking a personal interest in, um, uh, in them and in what happened directly. So um, he, I've run into General Kelly a couple times over the years. He would never tell you, um, you know, that. It was his work on the back end that pushed that up, but it, it was him. So, okay, this is an excerpt. Uh, General Kelly has done this a couple of times. Um, as Todd mentioned, um, shortly after his, his own son, who was a Marine Lieutenant, uh, was killed in Afghanistan. I traveled to Ramadi the next day and spoke individually to a half dozen Iraqi police, all of whom told the same story. The blue truck turned down into the alley, immediately sped up as it made its way through the serpentine. They all said, we knew immediately what was going on as soon as the two Marines began firing. The Iraqi police then related that some of them also fired and then to a man ran for safety just prior to the explosion. All survived. 
One of the Iraqis elaborate, elaborated, with tears welling up, said, they'd run like any normal man would to save his life. What he didn't know until then, he said, was that Marines are not normal. Choking past the emotion, he said, Sir, in the name of God, no sane man would have stood there and done what they did. No sane man. They saved us all. What we didn't know at the time was that our security cameras, damaged initially in the blast, recorded some of the suicide attack. It happened exactly as the Iraqis had described it. It took exactly six seconds from when the truck entered the alley until it detonated. Six seconds. Not enough time to think about their families. Not enough time to think about their families, their country, their flag, their lives or deaths, but more than enough time for two very brave young men to do their duty into eternity. That is the kind of people who are on watch all over the world tonight for you. It's powerful. It's very powerful. And I think for me, the fact that he read that and focused on those two individuals right after his, his own son had perished um, said a lot. And I appreciate you reading that. No problem. The, uh, the closing paragraph gets me every time. It's... Um, to me, it's a reminder of how we can become very inwardly focused sometimes. Sure. Um, and we don't applaud those like these two Marines enough who focus on the on focus on benefiting others. I, I, I'm curious though, what what is your takeaway from this whole experience? Man, there, there are, I have a lot of takeaways. Um, I think the key takeaway that I have and that is something that has, has been a theme that has come through in so many interactions, conversations, um, memorial events that we've done for Jordan, Jonathan, for Nick Exaris over the years, is that uh, the impact of these two Marines, their actions in a six second period changed the trajectory of the lives of generations of Americans and Iraqis. And I don't just mean the, you know, the few dozen that were at that outpost that day, right? 
the legacy of these two has impacted so many others in their families, in our families, to remember and honor the fallen, those that have served. Um, but that, that legacy, it, it, it doesn't die. The impact of their actions uh, doesn't stop there. Right? We spoke earlier about all of the Marines that now have young families, um, that have children. Um, and so there's, there's that immediate impact for sure. Think about, you asked me about calling the parents, okay? I, I often thought, man, what if I'd had to call six parents, eight parents, 12 parents? Um, I don't know that I would have been equipped to do that. Um, so there's that, there's that immediate impact in the legacy of those families, Iraqis and Americans that were there, but there's the impact that the two of them have made on so many others in their communities, their churches, their schools, um, and in some cases, people that they never knew. Um, to go out, serve others, remember the fallen, um, and be thankful for the, the nation that, that we have protected by men like this. So I think I know the answer to this question, but uh, Dan, who are you carrying? So I'm, I'm carrying Lance Corporal Jordan Herter and Corporal Nick Exaros. Uh, Nick was one of the other Marines in that unit. He went on to serve with 2-8 uh, and, and passed away in Afghanistan a year later. Um, those are the two I'm carrying. Thank you for sharing your story. You've, uh, you've been remarkably raw and I appreciate that. And um, I can't thank you enough for being here. I appreciate the chance to come on and, and talk with you about our Marine brothers and their families. Thanks, Dan. You bet. Thank you. If this resonated with you in the least, please subscribe and like, and please, please, please share it with at least one person. These are the stories that make us uniquely American. These are the stories that preserve the integrity of our nation.